following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in this series called uh, Your Church, Y-O-U-R-E, Church. We're emphasizing this reality that we are all together, the church of God, that the church is not something that we go to when we, when we come together on Sundays. We're not going to church. We're coming together as a church, and we're going to God. That's the idea that Scripture gives us. So we're exploring what it means to be a church and to the nature and character and purpose of the church, and we're doing that by working through just one chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 12. So if you brought your Bible along, uh, turn over to there at, the, uh, at this point, Romans 12, and if you don't have a Bible, there are some in that cane basket on the info center table that you can grab, and we'll put the words on the screen, but nothing like having the Bible open in front of you. And as we work through this chapter uh, over the next few weeks, what you may notice is that the structure of Romans chapter 12 uh, mirrors the threefold purpose statement of our church. So we have this statement, loving God, loving each other, loving the world, and loosely, Paul, as he's working through this chapter of his letter to the Romans, follows that progression. So last week we looked at Romans 12 verse 1 and 2 and we talked about worship. Uh, anyone remember? And so there is the loving God part of the equation where we talked about being living sacrifices. So that what we do here and now in church, so to speak, as we worship God is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to worship. Worship goes from here out across your week. And it looks like a million tiny decisions that you and I make to submit ourselves to God and die to our own interests and live towards the interests of others. That's being a living sacrifice. That's actually worship, as the Bible describes it. And all that culminates here on Sundays and then flows out again into the week. So that's sort of the loving God dimension of things. And then today we're turning a corner into a section of Romans chapter 12 that looks more at the loving each other stuff, the loving each other dimension of who we are. So we're going to pick this chapter up in verse uh, 3 and read through to verse 8 today, where Paul introduces us to a new image, a new picture for thinking about and being the church. Let me read this to you. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So when we, when we started out this series in the church, we, uh, if you remember the very first week, we looked at a, an image of the church, which was the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And now in this passage, we come to another central image of the church in the New Testament, which is that the church is like a human body. 
This is probably very familiar to many of you. It crops up in various places in the Bible that the church is kind of like a human body and the various members of the church are kind of like the various parts of a human body that all function together. And this is familiar stuff. We're often referring to the church as the body of Christ, one of the most common ways that we talk about the church. And so then the very next question, usually after we've talked about the church as the body of Christ, is what part of the body are you? And then you have to figure out whether you're an arm or a leg or some sort of internal organ, like a spleen or something, and figure this out. And you may have done this, and you may have been through like a, a, a course where you discover your gifts and that's how you figure out what part of the body you are. You get given a list of these are the gifts that are to choose from, and you've got to choose a gift. Even if your gift is not on that list, you've still got to choose a gift from this list. And then once you've chosen your gift, you get kind of married up uh, with a particular ministry of the church. And so you can use this gift in the church, and that's how you find out what part of the body you are. Now, I'm being a little bit cynical here. You can hear that in my voice. But that process can be really, really good. It can be very, very helpful for figuring out who we are and where we're best to serve. But the problem is, I think, that you can get to the end of that whole process and, and feel a bit like the only point of the body of Christ image is, is kind of like a recruitment tool for church ministries. And the only reason that Paul put it in the Bible is to give pastors leverage so that we could get you signed up to ministry A, B, and C. And if we really have a gap on this team, we're going to pull out the body of Christ image. And now we're all parts of the body. And Now, of course, being the body of Christ means serving, and it means using our gifts, and we're going to talk about all that. But the point is that there's a lot more to it. This image of the church as a body has such a depth and a richness to it, and if we reduce it down to just simply a functional operational metaphor about church ministries and programs, we've lost something. It's never less than that, but it's a lot more than that. In fact, this is a, a, a magnificent countercultural vision of who the church is together. Now, Paul was not the first one to use this image. Interestingly, at least he wasn't the first one to use the image of a human body for a group of people. That goes back several hundred years before Paul to the Greek philosopher Plato. Now Plato, in his book The Republic, talks about the state as a body. So he was living within the Greek empire of his day, and he describes society like a body. All the citizens of society, all the citizens of the state, are like the members of a human body. And so that gave Plato a way of talking about what the ideal state would look like, this functioning body. And that image has been picked up and used down through the centuries, and it survives even today. So when we talk about local body politics, that's what we're doing. The, the, the image of the city of Auckland as a body, and the citizens of Auckland are the various parts of the body that somehow all work together. So that's where that image comes from. If you don't like your local body politicians, you could blame Plato. He came up with the idea, sort of. He came up with the image of the state as a body. So this was common currency in Paul's world, to think about the state or society or culture as, as a human body. And Paul's hearers certainly would have been familiar with this because, remember, they were living in Rome which was the capital city of the empire of the day. They were living in the heart of the Roman Empire. And if you think about the Roman Empire in particular, like a body, 
it would have been a very hierarchical body. At one end, at the very top, you've got the head, the emperor, the supreme authority. And the emperor ruled over and controlled the whole body of the empire ruthlessly in a domineering way. And then coming down from the emperor, you have all the various parts of the body in this strict hierarchy right down to the soles on the bottom of the feet, so to speak, the slaves, the disabled, the mentally impaired. These were the outcasts of society in the Roman. These were the untouchables. It's like a caste system. And it was very, very rigid. If you were living in the Roman Empire, you would know exactly which rung on the ladder you occupied, to change the metaphor for a moment. You would know exactly where you sat. You'd be very, very conscious of the people around you who were the next level up in the body. And you would give them appropriate honor. And you'd make speeches about them in public places because you'd be schmoozing. And you'd be looking for your opportunity to manipulate them in order to get your leverage and get into that position and, and move up just one rung. And you'd be very, very conscious of people that occupied a lower level than you. And you would seek to solicit honor from them. And you might enter into a client-patron kind of relationship with them so that they gave you certain honor in regards for your benefaction. And you would give them certain privileges. And you'd always be seeking to try and manipulate the people around you so that you could gain leverage. You could try and move up another rung, another step, and be a little bit higher in the body. The, the whole of the empire worked like this. It all operated on the basis of rank and status and position. It was a very class-conscious sort of society. And so within that matrix, Paul comes along and he writes this in verse 5. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. So what he's doing, he's the first one, as far as we know, to take the image of the body and apply it specifically to the church. And what he's doing for those who are used to thinking about the state as a body is he's saying the church is kind of like a, an alternative state. It's kind of like a city within the city. It's like a society that functions as an alternative to society at large. It's a different type of entity to the social entity that we all live within. Now, we have to be really careful at this point of understanding what Paul meant. When he describes the church as a body, he's not saying that the church is supposed to organize itself as some kind of political state. We're not supposed to become a kind of geopolitical entity. That's the road that ISIS have taken. That's the, that's the strategy that they've adopted, is to take a particular religious ideology and try and become a, a state, a, a functioning state with a government, with a flag, with an army, to, to be a state in the fullest sense that they can. So not only do they have a warped ideology, they are seeking to carve out geographic territory in order to be a state. The church is never commissioned to do that. The church is never mandated to try and become a state. Not only do we have a completely different ideology, but we are called to be a state within the state. We're called to be a city within the city, so to speak. To be an alternative presence within the state that we live in. 
So we're citizens of a particular country, and then within that, we're also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And in amongst the world, the church is supposed to be a contrasting kind of body with the body of the world. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to look different so that we're a contrast community, a contrasting body with the body of our culture, with the body of society. And here's the contrast The key phrase Paul uses is at the end of verse 5. He says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. That's about as far as you could get from the Roman Empire, where each member is trying to manipulate all of the others to try and get ahead. And Paul says, no, no, it's not like that here. Here in the church, every one of us belongs to the others. That we belong to, we're not trying to get ahead of the others. We're not trying to reinforce our social position relative to others. Whatever rank and status and position you have in society doesn't matter here. That's the church. That's at the heart of who we are. Whatever Paul would say to his, his hearers in Rome, doesn't matter if you're a wealthy landowner, you've got tons of slaves. And it doesn't matter if you are one of those slaves. In here, the ground is level. In this community, rank and status and position, they go out the window. None of that matters. At at, at the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. And that is the beauty of the body image. That's the beauty of this metaphor that Paul is saying it creates a different kind of community. It's hard to overstate how much Paul is stepping away from the social conventions of his day here. It's so different to his culture. But he's saying none of that social hierarchy matters anymore. I I once saw Mark Strom, who used to be the principal of Laidlaw College, illustrate this in a beautiful way. He said, you picture the, the, the Roman Empire like a ladder, sort of like we have, a vertical ladder. Everyone knows exactly their rung. And he says, here's what the gospel does. It takes that ladder and it turns it on its side and lifts it up. Oh, that was great. Not only does the gospel turn the social ladder on its side so that we're all equal, it lifts us up so that we all have a position far greater than we've got in the world anyway. You could could be the most successful and prestigious person in the culture that you live in. It doesn't matter. In the church, you've got a far greater position, which is that you're accepted before God. You could have the lowest position on the social ladder, but in the church, you've got one greater than anyone else but equal to everyone else in Christ. In Christ, we're all one. The ladder is turned on its side and it's lifted up. Now that is as relevant to us today, isn't it? As it was in the Roman Empire. And I know you're already making some of the transitions to today. We live in a different culture. Maybe the class system is not as rigid as it once was, but we still live in a culture in a world that is socially stratified. There are still those socioeconomically that are higher on the ladder, those that are lower. How do we make it practical here? How do we become this kind of community where whatever kind of social ladder exists in the world, it doesn't exist here? I think it's the kind of idea that that we love to talk about, but it's hard to make it real. And what tends to happen is that we, we still act in ways that can subtly reinforce a social hierarchy in church, subtly reinforce positions, social positions relative to one another. How do we make this image of the body of Christ as a body of absolute equality in Christ? How do we make that real? How do we make it practical? I think the answer that Paul gives, surprisingly, is by using your gifts. That's where the discussion goes, which is interesting, 
Because usually when we talk about gifts, we're simply talking about that's how you make the church work. I think Paul would say, no, using your gifts is exactly how the church looks different to the rest of the world. Because if the world is based on rank, status, and position, gifts are based on grace. Our gifts are based on exercising grace towards one another and serving one another in humility and love and putting aside our own self-interest. The operating principle of our gifts is grace. It's a completely different operating system to the one that the world knows. So the very word that Paul uses here in verse 6, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. The word that he uses for gifts is built on the word for grace. The word for grace in the New Testament is the word charis. And it means favor, God's favor toward us, unconditional favor, God's extravagant love, undeserved, unearned, unmerited, his love that's poured out upon us to reconcile us to himself in Christ Jesus. That's God's favor toward us. And what Paul does is he takes that word and he just simply adds a bit on. So he has charis, and then he just adds on mata, which is the word for gifts. So literally, that word means grace gifts. That, I think, is the best translation. I think that's how it should have been translated in the New Testament, that when you see that word gifts, it should really read grace gifts, hyphenated. Because fundamental to our gifts is the idea of grace, that our gifts are given to us by the grace of God, unearned and unmerited, and they're given so that we could serve others with grace to reinforce the idea that we are all equal, to place others ahead of ourselves. So God has given us these, these gifts within the body of Christ. And gifts really, I think sometimes we can overthink this one. Gifts are anything that is a strength for you. Sometimes people want to divide, you know, what's a natural talent, what's a gift, what's on this side, what's on that side. I think that's overthinking it. I think a gift is any aptitude that you have, any skill you have, any expertise you have, any ability you have, any strength that you have that can be used to serve others and glorify God. That's a gift. It's a gift. So it could range from professional skills that you have, engineering, architecture, working with children, medical skills. Could be any skill that you have, any expertise you've developed, right through to personality strengths that you have. You may have a deep ability to empathize with other people. That, that's a gift. You may be a well-organized person. You have the gift of administration. These things can be sort of more internal the way we're wired. They can simply be things that we've gained skill and experience in over the course of our lives. I think all of it's gift. All of it is grace. All of it's given to us by God. And by the way, I don't think that only Christians have gifts. I think it's a gift of God's common grace. It's a theological term people use to describe the grace given to everyone, not just Christians. A gift of God's common grace that he gives gifts to all people. So as you're watching the Cricket World Cup, you can rightly say there's some gifted athletes. And it is. It's a gifting. doesn't mean they're a Christian, but it means they are gifted the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that we are gifted and everyone else is not. It's that our gifts are to be used to a certain end and directed towards a certain purpose, which is the glory of God and the strengthening of the church and the service of one another. 
you're a non-Christian, you use your gift however you want, can be completely self-serving. But here in the church, the gifts are to be used for the building up of the body of Christ and the humble serving of one another. That's how they're to be directed. And that's how we start to use our gifts to help the church look different, to be a different kind of body to the body of the world. So here in this passage, Paul gives us a few examples of gifts. Seven, in fact. Don't read anything into the magic number seven, by the way. It's just seven. Prophecy, uh, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. I think it's important to state that these are only examples. And there are other lists in the New Testament, and sometimes I know people want to compile the lists together and create the definitive once-for-all list of gifts. Please tick a box. I don't think it works like that. I don't think Paul, when he was writing, and Peter, when he writes his epistle, ever set out to give a comprehensive list of the gifts. I think they're saying, here's some examples. Here's some examples that relate to you. Here's some examples you may want to pick up on. But they are representative of gifts. They're not exhaustive. That's very important. So if you have a gift that's not on the list, that's okay. Don't feel inferior. Don't feel like you don't really have a gift. doesn't matter. A good example on that one, I think, is hospitality. It's not listed specifically as a gift in the New Testament, but I have personally consumed some awesome hospitality in my life. I have been blessed by people's gift of hospitality. I'm telling you now, it's a gift. Some people have the gift to create an environment within their home that puts people at ease and makes them comfortable and facilitates great community. That's a gift. A gift is any strength that you have that can be used to serve others, and it's okay if it's not on this list. Think of it like the fruit of the Spirit. That's not an exhaustive list either. That's a list of certain attributes that our lives display when we're surrendered to Christ. But these are just examples. So be imaginative and be true to who you are and how God has wired you in thinking about your gift. The, the really important thing, though, is the way that we are to use our gifts. I think that's the main point. And, and this comes back to how we are to be a contrasting community. Here's the warning Paul gives at the beginning of this passage in verse 3. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. That means sound judgment, with a right mind, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. What Paul is saying is that even though the gifts are supposed to be used with loving service, any one of the gifts can be used in a self-glorifying way. Now that's very true of kind of upfront gifts, like teaching, like worship leading, gifts that have a little bit of a public face to them, obviously they can be used in ways that go to our head and ways that puff us up. And that's, that's a huge temptation. But it's not only a temptation for the upfront gifts. I think it's a temptation for any gift, any skill, any strength that you have. You may even have the gift of just very uh, low-key ways. You, you serve other people. You go around. You do a bit of gardening for someone and mow the lawns. You're one of those humble kind of serving people in the background. But even that gift, if you're not careful, can be used in a way that starts to go to your head a little bit. You start to think, who else in the church would do this but me? You know? And I'm just going to mow the lawns in such a way that I make sure when they're looking out their window, they see me <laughs> right here. I am the most humble person in this church. And see, it can just happen subtly. No one has to even know about it. But it's possible, isn't it? Certainly the gift of giving can work like that, can reinforce a certain social hierarchy, can't it? I can give because I can give, you know, because I'm generous, because I have the means to give. And it can reinforce all these kinds of things. And Paul's saying that it's supposed to be the opposite. 
Our gifts are supposed to be grace gifts, remember? The pattern of our gifts should follow the pattern of Jesus himself. And Jesus is our example here. There's a great passage in Philippians 2 where Paul says, Jesus was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus had the highest rank and status imaginable, far greater than a head of state. And Paul says, what, what did he do with it? He gave it up. He didn't cling to the vestiges of deity, didn't cling to privilege, didn't cling, cling to social position, gave it up, abandoned himself. In fact, the word is stronger, emptied himself, emptied himself and became a servant. So that's a beautiful passage just for showing the way that Jesus has gone the whole length of the social hierarchy from the top to the bottom. He ends up a slave in Paul's language, made himself a slave, least of all, but obedient to the Father, even unto death. So Jesus has exercised a profound downward mobility in his own life. And now he calls us to do the same as we exercise our gifts. Our gifts are not to be self-seeking. It's easy because our gifts kind of make us look like something. And it's easy for that to go to our head because we've got these strengths and attributes. And we can thank God for that. But they must, they must, they must be used in ways that are humble and that put others before ourselves. We we're not after some kind of position. Don't use your gifts and your strength in some kind of way that just want, needs attention, has to be seen, got to have some recognition, must get the credit, need to be thanked. It's not about that. Just use your gifts with absolute humility, absolute service, love towards one another, that you put your own interests aside and you just lovingly and graciously serve other people because when you do that, you're following in the way of Jesus. You don't need to cling to your particular social position or whatever. doesn't matter. Just exercise your gifts with humility with a deep humility, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. That's how we're going to look different to the world because then people will see us working completely differently, not a community of people selfishly trying to get ahead, but a community of people selflessly loving one another and putting the other ahead of themselves, using their gifts in such a way as to serve and to give and to show grace. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, do you know your gifts? Simple question. Do you know? Can you right now identify your gift or gifts? Do you know what they are? It's, it's important to be aware of this. Don't think, oh, I don't have one, or don't think mine's not as important, or whatever. You have a gift that is given to you by God. Do you know what it is? Any strength you have that can be used to serve others. If you're not sure, here's a couple of questions that may help. One, can you think of a time when you genuinely felt like you were being used by God. It doesn't need to be dramatic, doesn't need to be extraordinary, but some way in which you felt like, you know, God, when I think back about it, God was kind of using me in that way to, to bless someone, to help someone, to help the church, strengthen the church, whatever. Some way in which you feel like, yeah, I was, I was being used by God. That might be an indication as to what your gifts are. Think about what other people encourage in you. What do people affirm? When you've done something, particular thing, do, people, do you find that people encourage that and, 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 and say, good job? What, what are the areas of your personality makeup or, or what you do that people encourage? And thirdly, kind of counterintuitive, but what makes you angry? It's a bit of reverse psychology. What gets under your skin? What irritates you? Because that, interestingly, is a clue to your gifting. 
whatever it is that kind of annoys you and irritates you in a good kind of way, you know what I mean? It's not just another person that irritates you, but just things in general, stuff that annoys If you have a real irritation about injustice in the world and seeing people downtrodden and marginalized, it may be that your gift is injustice, mercy, compassion, lifting up those who are broken. If you just cannot stand disorder, maybe that you're an administrator. You know, one of the things that kind of gets under my skin in a, in a healthy way is biblical illiteracy among Christians. Honestly, you know, just being honest. It's, it's Christians that just don't know Scripture and don't know how to live deeply within the Bible. And I just, it, yeah, you know, it gets under my skin. And, and to me, it compels me to want to teach and to open Scripture and to help others come into a deeper understanding of, of God's Word, which I think is how God's wired me. What irritates you? If you turn that around, could it be an indication of your gifts? Secondly, are you using your gifts? Are you showing your gifts? And are you doing that in a way that's consistent with God's grace, not in a way that's self-serving and self-seeking? You can use your gifts anywhere. If you're an administrator, you can use your gifts in your workplace, in your home, wherever. But God intentionally calls us to use our gifts in the church. Not exclusively, but intentionally to bring our gifts into the body of Christ and to use them to serve one another so that the church would be a different kind of community to the world? Are you using your gifts within this community of the church? And there's two ways to do that. One is through the organized ministries and activities of the church, serving in kids' ministry, serving in the worship team, being a life group leader, whatever it is, through the organized formal programs of the church. The other way is informally. I was going to say through the disorganized ministries, but that doesn't quite sound right. Through the informal ways, outside of organized programs and activities, simply using who you are and your gifts to lovingly serve others. And there are story after story after story of people already doing this among our community. It's not really appropriate to share them because people aren't doing it for any sort of recognition. But there's stories of people being really generous to other families in the church. There's stories of people giving their professional time and skills and services to other families and people within the church. There's story after story of people using who God has made them to be to reach out to others and bless other people in this community. It's already happening. If you're not yet engaged in using your God-given grace gift in some way, in this community, start today. Find a way. Ask God to reveal. Talk to some other people. Feel, I'm, I'd love to talk with you about what the opportunities are. We can talk together. And let me just pop in this little caveat, which I always have to mention. Using your gifts does not exempt you from the setup team. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, well, I don't have the gift of serving, you know. Now I know my eyes have been opened. I don't really have this gift. You know, we don't want a mass exodus from the setup team because you've all decided you've got other gifts somewhere else. You know, not having the gift of service doesn't exempt you from serving. Neither does not having the gift of giving exempt you from giving or not having the gift of evangelism exempt you from evangelizing. These are Christian virtues. We're all called to serve. It's just that some have particular giftings which might express themselves in different ways. But there are things around the church that just need to be done. And we're all called to love and serve one another in that regard. Finally, are you growing in your gifts? And this is important, and, and often uh, we gloss over it, but are you, gr are you growing? You know, our gifts are things that we're still experimenting with and exploring and trying to figure out, and especially in the early days of trying to discern, well, what has God given me? And, and some of you young people are trying to figure this out now, and, and what, what direction would God have me going? You know, the rest of us in this congregation, what we need to do is be really encouraging of people as they explore their gifts, okay? 
Those of us, we, we need to be encouraging of those that are just trying stuff out and trying to figure it out and figure out where God puts them. I remember when I started out preaching and just started to get a few opportunities in, in a few different churches to preach some sermons. And I remember this one sermon I preached that was an absolute shocker. Like, I'm not kidding, total abysmal failure of a sermon on every possible front. And the worst thing was, my entire family had come to see me that morning, including my dear old gran. And they were all, they'd tripped across the city to see me, and I absolutely failed. Apparently that message was videoed, and I've never to this day been able to watch it. I literally cringe when I think about it. It was so bad. But I had people that encouraged me, and I had opportunities, and, and I grew, and I'm still growing in preaching. But, but this is who we've got to be for one another. We can't just shut people down because they, they, they don't you know, have a great, great showing the first time. We've got to encourage people and be a community of grace toward one another so that we affirm gifts and we call them out of each other and we encourage and we equip each other and we resource. But for you, when you think about your gifts, what are you doing to grow? What's one thing you could do this year to grow in your, in your gifting? Talk to someone who's got that gifting and maybe is further down the road than you. Read a book, attend a conference. Ask God to show you. Give, give me a step, Lord, that would help me to encourage. Because if this is a gift, I want to use it. I want to fan it into flame. I want you to fan it into flame. I, I want to refine this and hone this so that I can offer it back to you and to your people as best I can. In all this, we've got to remember that our gifts are not our own. They belong to the body. The gifts that God's given you are a gift of His grace, and they belong to the church. They don't belong to you. So if you're not using your gifts or you're using them in a self-serving way, you're withholding something from the body of Christ that's supposed to be a gift to the rest of us, supposed to be something for the strengthening and building up of the church. But when you use your gifts in a selfless, humble way, in line with how God's made you and created you, in a small but meaningful way, you're not just doing a task. You're not just helping out a ministry leader. You are contributing to the church becoming the church. To the church being the body of Christ, a contrast community with the world. By using your grace gifts, you're contributing to the church being a community of light in the midst of darkness, a community of hope in a hopeless world, a community of equality in a world where there's a hierarchy, a community of selfless love, in a world of utter selfishness, you are helping and contributing to the church being the church, and that is deeply pleasing to God. So may we use our grace gifts in gratitude for the grace that God has shown to us, unconditional grace, and may we use our gifts as an expression of grace to one another, strengthening the church to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, it's amazing to think in this room right now, of all the gifts that are present here. All of the individual lives that you've assembled, Lord, even on this, this one Sunday. All the gifts in this room, Lord, the talents, the strengths. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's feeling like they've got an inferior gift or who doesn't know what their gift is and isn't feeling qualified. I pray, Lord, that you'd just speak to them and affirm to them right now that they are a vital and indispensable part 
of this body, the church. And I pray you'd show them how you've equipped them and how you've gifted them and just bring that out into the front of their mind right now that they can see this is a grace gift that you have given to me. God, would you equip your people for works of service among this church, that we would be a community of people selflessly serving one another in formal ways and informal ways. And always, always, always doing it, Jesus, to serve you, not to serve ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for your gifts. Thank you that you've given us grace upon grace. Thank you for the gifts you've given us. May we use them in your service, humbly and lovingly, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.